0: Hello audiences and surrogates everywhere and welcome to the latest episode of the audience surrogate podcast. I am of course Steve Vieira and I am joined as ever by my co-host coming to you live from Hollywood, California at the forefront of the picket lines where he's handing out business cards. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Matthew Gilbert.
1: Oh, that is information I so wish was true but isn't. But I actually do know people who are out in in California, not on the picket line, but One day they'll be there. I have faith in them.
0: Well, with best wishes for your friends, it is a tough time to be getting into the business. And as we'll be discussing this week... The writers guild of America has gone on strike with its members across the nation, bringing many television and film projects to a halt. Uh, and so an already tenuous job and a tenuous industry is facing even more upheaval and uncertainty. It's bad news for many people who depend on this as their livelihood. It's bad for many people who simply love these stories and and the stories that these writers help to expand. Um, but it's great for podcasters. So Gilbert and I are going to be breaking it down today. We're going to be sharing some of our thoughts as outsiders, zealots, but outsiders nonetheless, on the state of affairs between the Writers Guild of America and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, a.k.a. Evil! (laughs) I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, The AMPTP. They are covered in citrus for, as we know, every villain is lemons. <laughs> and I hope that uh, copyright lawyers out there will let us get away with that. Uh, all right. So today, Gilbert and I are going to talk about the writer's strike. We're also going to talk a little bit about the summer movie season uh, and what we have to look forward to uh, potentially as the strike continues in another one of our classic soup and sandwich episodes. So, Gilbert, you are a lover of the business as much as you love art art. You also love to peek at the man behind the curtain and see how these pieces of art are brought to the world. And so I know that you, as much as I have, have been very interested in watching this process unfold to see what it's going to mean for the future of movies and TV. You've already declared that the AMPTP is evil, which I agree with. So our loyalties are up front. Uh, But what do you think coming out of this strike or going into these negotiations, what's the most critical piece that you think is at stake? Or what do you think needs to be addressed in order for negotiations to make progress?
1: Sure. So first of all, I'm not a writer. I'm not part of the picket line, despite what some uh, recent introductions may have said.
0: Aspirant, Aspirant. Aspirant,
1: yes. But I do not speak for the WGA. They have my full support, of course. But I speak right now, as you said, as an outsider, trying to understand and contextualize what this means for the industry now, what this means for the industry going forward, how we got here and where we can kind of go from here. So I think the first thing that's important to look at is what are they striking about, what are the writers demanding that the studios are not giving, and I mean, long story short, the answer is what it's always going to be, it's money. For those of you who don't know, being a writer in Hollywood is far from a dream. It's far from idyllic. It is as much of a gig economy as everything else has become in the last decade and a half. And what I mean by that is writers do not get paid consistently by any stretch of the imagination. They get paid from show to show, from episode to episode. And if they don't write, they don't get paid. And if they don't get paid, then they have to find some other way to make ends meet, pay their bills, eat food, all that fun stuff. Now, one thing that's interesting when it comes to this strike as opposed to the one in 2007 or any other uh, writer strike is that the writing industry has not always been this way, but due to the overwhelming rise of streaming as the dominant form of television and movie consumption, it has radically changed the landscape in which writers are able to get paid for their work. Because when everybody was still watching things on cable, writers would get a little piece of that action. They would get a residual check every time something was rerun every time it appeared on tv because the channels and the studios were still making money off their work when everybody is streaming everything and most importantly when the streaming platforms are not releasing the numbers of who is streaming what and how much it ceases negotiations for those residuals and it leaves writers in the unfortunate position of having to live off their initial base pay for the episodes or seasons that they've written and hoping to God they can find another one before the next bill comes due. And the other part of this that I think concerns me the most, at least as far as the future of writing in the industry going forward as somebody who is only an outsider looking in, but who is of course invested in the future of movies and television and entertainment, is the use of AI in the writing process because over the past five or so months we have seen an overwhelming rise in the use of artificial intelligence when it comes to creation to begin with we had ai art we have chat gpt we have more ais out there now than i could possibly list And the fact of the matter is AIs are cheaper to use than writers are to pay. And if studios had their way, they would cut costs down to zero and profits up to 100. If they could get away with not paying these writers a cent for their work, they would. And that is what's on the table here is now that artificial intelligence has become advanced enough to be able to conceive and write pretty convincing human-like stories and creations. Executives are positing that they don't need writers as much in the process as they used to, and that writing only has to be a touch-up job on a script that an AI has already written, rather than storytellers honing their craft, going through the writing process as messy and inconsistent as it is to create stories that people can form an actual connection to. And and that is what concerns me is I am not interested in an industry and a future without humans at the center of the stories that are being told. And in addition to just a blanket opposition to the greed of late stage American capitalism, that is why I am fully behind the writers here. Not just because I have friends in the industry, but because what the studios want to have here, I am not interested in participating in.
0: I think you drew a map very nicely there of all the issues that have been at play, or at least many of the major contours of debate between the writers and the studios. And something that struck me in your words was the distinction between the industry, as far as the livelihood, as far as the work product that people create, related to writing, you know, which comes through in the form of scripts, screenplays, eventually films, television shows, etc. And rewrites. Uh, and rewrites, you know, again, reshoots are a huge part of the business and then rewrites are inherent in that process. But also the craft itself. Never before in the existence of the Writers Guild has there been such a threat to the actual craft of writing or the necessity of writers, of the workers, to generate that product. AI is on the cusp and is already in some cases being used to help develop scripts and ideas and prompts that are incorporated into final projects that come to audiences. And as technology advances, it was writers who first introduced us to the matrix and taught us that machines could create constructs and ideas that could fool humans or could almost completely fool humans, except for a select perceptive few. So while the writers are also fighting for the craft and fighting for their place at the center of art as the engine where a lot of this creativity comes, they also have to fight for their survival in a practical sense, because on the one extreme end, I've heard some writers or some advocates for the writers say that they are slipping out of the middle class, that writers are no longer able to support their families make careers or, or find livelihoods in writing in ways that were possible for the past few decades and generations uh, in the United States and in our, our media. And so it's it's dangerous. Uh, writers don't even have that basic confidence. Not that they don't have confidence in the work. I think that they have incredible pride in what they do and they rightfully should, but they're very necessity or their very value is being questioned and they are being painted in some cases with the brush of obsolescence that they're not needed anymore why should they be paid at all they have a little bit of the effect where they're making saddles and and there's a car coming into town is, is certainly what the studios as car makers would like to think but one thing the studios have pointed out in response to some of the writers more aggressive economic claims certainly is that there are more writers working than ever there are In our era of peak TV, writers can get jobs on any number of shows on a variety of networks, and those shows can go on to incredible success. And while that's certainly true, the stability of those jobs does not exist. In the era of cable TV or network TV, shows could count on renewal, and their season would be aired. They would be guaranteed to the advertisers in order to appear on screens at certain times. And now we have seen in recent years... Instances where shows have wrapped production on seasons which have been ordered and studios, streamers have decided we're actually not going to move forward with this. So some writers, yeah, they may be working, they may find projects, there may be more projects for them to work on, but the stability of those projects, the ability of of writers to earn an income, a livable income off of those projects is in complete disarray. So there's quite a state of chaos which is very disappointing to see, you know, both as people who appreciate craft for what it is, for the incredible entertainment and artistic value it offers, but also as people who have incredible respect for the people who bring it to us. So one thing, you know, you really spoke eloquently about the threat of AI, in recent negotiations the writers made an opening demand or a simple concession from studios that writers were valuable and that human-generated work should be at the center of all writing for any studio project. And the studios balked and said that they would instead offer a meeting on advancements in technology in the field and how they affected writing and how they affected film production. So as writers want their basic humanity recognized, the studios don't have the time of day. Uh, They have one, one annual meeting. And so we've come to a dangerous place uh, it's a sad state of affairs and the writers the writers certainly ha- have a bit of an uphill battle what do you what do you think the writers have to their advantage uh, we're about two weeks into negotiations the strike officially began according to my records here on midnight 01 a.m on Tuesday May 2nd so as we record we are well past two weeks into the strike there have been many forecasts about how long the strike will last but Gilbert, going into negotiations at this early stage, what do you think the writers have in their favor? Or what do you think they have that can convince studios to take them more credibly than we're apparently seeing at this point? What do you think they have to really achieve some of their demands? What might they need to do?
1: I think the thing that they have that is most to their advantage is also what makes this as equally heartbreaking as it is infuriating, is that we are Living in a time of unprecedented adoration and dependence on media, on television, on movies. People are assigning these things to their identity. There has never been as strong a connection to the craft of writing and filmmaking and television production as there is now. And when you have all these studios making their next big moves in the streaming game, they don't have a shadow of a chance to get off the ground as they might hope to without content to support it. And you don't have content without writers. So as we have HBO about to transition into their next phase of their evolution and recent announcements about Disney and Hulu, and who knows what the next domino to fall will be because there are more streaming services out there than I can definitely name. I think as we enter the next phase of that war, the studios are going to have to give the writers, ideally a lot, to keep their platforms running. Because if people do not have content on there that keeps them coming back, they will cancel their subscriptions and those platforms will fail. And considering how much of a significant piece of these studios' annual revenues streaming has become, that is worst case scenario that that is unacceptable to them because Hollywood is not at the moment ready to move on to a post streaming era because their user base most certainly isn't. And I think that writers have timing on their side right now. I think that they have the ability to kind of leverage these moves that the studios are trying to make as well as the public boasting of the studios' annual profits that the writers are not seeing, but the CEOs are, as well as, more than anything, they have public sentiment on their side. Right now, I think unions are better viewed in America than they have ever been in history. There is a massive distrust right now of capitalism and corporations and corporate soullessness, frankly, that by the power of the internet and social media and word of mouth, more and more people are aware that the strike is happening. They are aware of what the strike will do to the products that they love. And they are aware of the role that the writers play in the connections that they form to these shows. Because as I said before, the connection that audiences have to their TV shows now is practically symbiotic every person out there, certainly those listening, have their favorite shows on every streaming platform. They have their favorite shows that their friends watch that they don't. This is something that connects as many people as probably have a Spotify account, frankly. And I think that if public sentiment can withhold the dearth that is about to come with a lack of unionized writers in the industry, then the studios will be forced to concede a lot more than they would like to. And that is, I think the ideal outcome.
0: It's going to come down to the money. It always does. Uh, That is the primary leverage because in many ways that is what they are fighting for. Uh, Many of the demands boil down to how much money or how much uh, exposure are the studios willing to give to the writers. So until the studios begin to feel pain and they think that that bottom line, that exposure is threatened or they face a greater threat to their status quo, to their goals, their profits, they will not move an inch. So if the strike does last long enough for them to see that squeeze, we'll have to find out. We may know coming up in the end of June uh, or the beginning of July At the end of Q2, when some of these services begin to announce their subscribership, if we see any dips in the numbers, and certainly as the year goes on into September, October, when we would see the next quarter, the dips in subscribership or the lack of growth might certainly tell us that people are not willing to support companies that are not willing to treat writers fairly. I'm sure that won't come at any reduction in CEO pay, and the writers have quite smartly been using that as a tool to chip away at studios defenses some of these services have been recently acquired and merged for hundreds of millions of dollars still an egregious sum and the idea that there's not enough room to pay writers more or to hire writers to completely staff a project Is quite ludicrous
1: it completely is and i know that there was a clip making the rounds a week or so ago of adam conover on cnn blasting the ceo of cnn's annual salary or annual bonus that he took last year compared to what he is currently paying his writers in the newsroom or writers at any other network it is impossible to overstate the contribution of writers to the industry of entertainment going as far back as you want to go We don't have any of this without writers writers are aware of that, and as much as they don't want to admit it, I believe studios are aware of that too. They just want to hold as much power in that conversation as they possibly can, which due to the way that the industry has kind of been divided and conquered by streaming versus theatrical, by TV versus movies, by long form versus short form, by every single way that you've seen TV and movies change over the last 20 or so years has made it very easy for studio executives to be the ones holding all the cards. So I think the ultimate question that this is going to boil down to is, will the strike last long enough for these platforms to run out of content they have in the bullpen? That they need production to start on new things before the writers need to eat, frankly. Which doesn't bode well for the writers when I phrase it like that. But. Forgive me for over-dramatizing this, but I see this as a battle for nothing less than the future of the entire industry. And it is imperative that the WGA get as much here as they possibly can. Now, every strike ends with some concessions on both sides. The studios have already given up a lot, including staff writer positions versus salaries and things like that, that while not the main focus on the table, are still massive wins for the WGA, but when you look at the way streaming has completely dominated the industry and is not going anywhere anytime soon, and when you look at the average studio executive's salary versus a writer's annual income, when you look at the popularity that all these products of writers carry from year to year to year. And I'm talking things like The Bear, Stranger Things, Succession, Ted Lasso, anything you can possibly think of. There is absolutely no excuse that writers should not be seeing some of the success that their products are creating for their
0: superiors. I wish that for them. I think they will have to wait a while uh, because at the moment, consumers who will need to be the writer's primary ally will not feel that pain of the strike. I don't know how many people will unsubscribe from Netflix or Disney Plus in any meaningful way right now simply because the writers are on strike and will then resubscribe in three months or maybe we'll pause their accounts. I don't know.
1: And it is important to mention the writers at the time of recording have not yet called for an outright boycott on these streaming
0: companies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed, indeed. I don't know that people are going to go that far. Uh, at least not yet, we'll see. But I don't know that there There certainly hasn't been any kind of widespread grassroots movement for people to boycott any of the streaming services as a result of the strike. Not yet. And the content fountain is not going to dry up anytime soon because there are already shows uh, that may be going through some minor tweaks in the editing room. But the rest of 2023 is largely lined up. You have on Disney Plus coming in June, Secret Invasion. And then at the end of the summer, their Ahsoka TV show, which is supposed to be uh, one of their new flagships. So they're all squared up. Uh, on the HBO side, uh, certainly Warner has Aquaman coming out at the end of the year. They have The Flash coming out in June. There are other projects. So many of these studios will not need to reach into their back pocket until into 2024 because they have enough content already made. And we received reports even ahead of the strike that studios were rushing scripts or mass ordering scripts so that during the strike they would have content already prepared, that they wouldn't need to be waiting for the strike to pass because this was already to go in the microwave and uh, come out the other side. That may hurt the writer's cause that there are so many places for the studios to reach to shake something new at audiences. So it will certainly take time for studios to feel threatened. It will need to be a larger existential threat where some of their projects which have been announced face threats at development or face timing issues. I also think other people in the industry might have to advocate for the writers or the writers might need to look for other people in the industry who will stand with them in their fight for better treatment. Because if the writers can lock down other elements of the industry and lead to larger work stoppages, that will, of course, give them greater bargaining power.
1: Yes. And it's funny that you mentioned that because this week we're recording on May 18th. The board of the Directors Guild of America also voted unanimously to go on strike when their current deal expires. I'm hearing from people out West that SAG-AFTRA, the actors union, is ready to follow in their lead as well. So we could be looking at a complete standstill on production of any non-union work for, potentially it could be a very long time, ideally if directors and actors, people whose faces audiences recognize and appreciate and support, if they start throwing their weight around arguing for the importance of the human element of art and creation and the artistic process then I think that could be something that could really force the studios to the table. That could be something that would truly jeopardize the future of these streaming platforms if they can't get their auteur or Oscar-winning thespian content made for their platform, if it would break union rules. And I think it's important to mention just how much the union is interested not in getting individual deals for individual writers, but for supporting the profession of writing or in the DGA's case, directing or acting in the future, because as we said before, it comes down to money. It always comes down to money. It is always going to come down to money, but Writers, in particular, have to make ends meet on a very small piece of the pie, comparatively speaking, versus the directors, versus the producers especially, versus the streaming studio heads. And one thing that the WGA has put in their demands is a mandatory writer's room. To give these shows and these scripts the best chance that they can have by a full staff of well-paid writers who have the time and the money and the resources to write these stories as well as they know they can. Unfortunately, when this was proposed, studios flat out rejected it. That is what I mean when I say that we are fighting for the future of the industry here, because if writers cannot make a living writing the entertainment and the stories that they love to tell, then they're not going to do that. And we're going to see fewer and fewer human writers in the quote unquote room in these productions, especially when it comes to the powerhouse studios like Disney and Universal and Warner Brothers or Warner Brothers Discovery as they are now. And that is when we start seeing the true death of art. That is when art becomes a product first and a reflection of creativity and
0: experience second.
1: And that to me is a worst case scenario.
0: If you don't have creatives, your creations will almost certainly fail. Technology has improved a lot to be at the point where we can even discuss AI as a legitimate threat to writing, which is perhaps an Avengers level threat, something so absurd and sci-fi that it's uh, beyond our ability to fathom. We've seen its limitations as well. We've seen when studios have relied on technology to fill in the gaps of some storytelling, whether that's with spectacle or effects or or what have you, where they've used uh, technology to try to make the world seem more immersive, that doesn't always do the job. Uh, but the backbone of any successful project is certainly the writing. The strength of that story's bones, how well the writers could lay a vision that carried across all the different disciplines of filmmaking to a director, to actors, to the people who were doing those visual effects and so forth. So I certainly hope that creativity is enshrined in the future of of the work. If the contract obviously does give the writers many of those concessions, that would be fantastic. I don't know that the full writer's room will be adopted because that would be an extreme reversal on the part of studios, but the idea that writers are saying, we literally want a seat at the table. You know, we want you to let us in the room and be a part of this creative process in a way that is secure. Right now, many workers, uh, many writers are treated as kind of consultants or freelancers. They have challenges getting to that stage where they are staff writers at the bottom of the totem pole. Uh, and even once they make it inside, there aren't a lot of guarantees that their show will move forward. So it's a very tenuous existence. It's a very tenuous job. And they work very hard and do incredible work. So the idea that they just need a little Security does not feel like much to ask for um, and more space to be creative. Certainly we as audiences get to benefit from that. And one thing that's a little ironic, I recall a few years ago, none other than ScarJo herself sued the Disney Corporation when they decided to release Black Widow simultaneously on streaming. And she said that violated certain elements of her contract, but that exposed or served as a bit of a canary in a coal mine for studios' ability to strong arm their projects on streaming, their ability to exert greater control over the revenue and profits generated from streaming content, and the ability of creatives... Because she, as the lead actress, had many back end deals, or her revenue would be, ge- her income would be generated in part based on how well the film performed in theaters. Well, her revenue is certainly going to be impacted if now it's possible to stream day one. So I thought that was very interesting. And now many of those issues that she described are coming across on picket signs from the writers. And we're seeing how systemically, from those days, and I'm sure even earlier, creatives have been expendable and the studios who control distribution for these projects are squeezing as much value as they can for themselves and how now they are attempting to apply this to every stage of the process from the writers to the actors to the directors hopefully they can find some alliance across their various factions and get the best deal for each other in 2007 when the writers formerly went on strike that the directors made a side deal for themselves, which strongly undermined the writer's position against the studios, uh, and they had to, to make a deal at that point, conceding some of their demands. So if that happens again, writers may be in a difficult spot, and they may not have the strength they need to forge agreements on issues like the use of AI, like their access to writers' rooms, their pay, and so forth. And certainly it would be creatives will be able to win stronger concessions across the entire industry if they work together. And that can only benefit us as audiences again, if creatives feel that they are more secure in their standing to make great work.
1: And that is why I would say the most important tenet of the writer's demands, as far as what the industry can look like going forward beyond just a moratorium on AI for every good reason under the sun is data transparency. Because right now, there is absolutely nothing compelling studios and streaming platforms to release the data of who is watching their shows, their content, and how many people are watching it. Netflix boasts every now and then that some new thing is the most watched thing in the history of Netflix, the most watched movie in the history of Netflix, the most watched show or miniseries, or the best quarter that they've ever done, whatever. As far as we know, they could be making all of that up. And honestly, we have no reason to believe that they aren't because without actual numbers, without a concrete set of data of what is popular and what is not, everything is only just a narrative being spun by a corporation trying to make the maximum amount of money. But if writers can win this, if streamers are forced to the table, to start giving up numbers, then they get back their ability to bargain. Then the content that they make doesn't just go into a black void under a banner that says Netflix or Hulu. Then they have the ability to say, hey, I am working on what is the most popular thing in the history of your platform, and you have to pay me or I'm not going to do that anymore. And that can apply to staff writers as well as showrunners. And frankly, just the more power that creatives have the better the industry and the better the art will be going forward. And I want to go back to something that you said a little while ago. You said that writing is the backbone of the the industry, and that's 100% true. But I would say even more than that is passion is the backbone of the industry. The true masterpieces of television and film do not come from studio orders. They do not come from, we need a show about this because the algorithm tells us that this will make money. It comes from the people who have a story that they want to tell, who know that they can tell and invest a part of themselves into the content that they make, that makes a piece of art more than just another thing on a streaming platform. I guarantee you an AI could not have written everything everywhere all at once. An AI could not have written Knives Out. Pick any of your favorite movies of the last 10 years. There is genuine human passion and excitement and individuality and innovation at the heart of every single one of them. And we do not have art and we do not have an industry if we do not have people Bearing their souls, essentially, to tell stories that audiences can connect to and relate to and, frankly, see themselves in.
0: Very well said. You're 100% correct. I think that the algorithms that these services have have been emblematic of the services themselves, and they can only deliver things that you already like. They can't challenge you. They can't always make you feel something. And they are reaching into that human experience and that uh, human effort. Um, in order to succeed. When people form relationships with a piece of art and with characters, they're also forming relationships with the creators and how the creators see the world, what they've experienced, uh, and the vision that they have for the world. I think that the more studios lean into AI, they can continue to deliver popcorn and give people what they think they want. And it feels very dystopian when you think about it. But When you remove humans from creativity, you will also remove its humanity. Um, So I really hope that art is recognized and humanity is recognized as a basic element of the industry as the negotiations move forward and where the writers do get what they're owed.
1: Absolutely. And one more point that I want to hit that I don't want to get lost in the sauce here is that when innovation changes industry, art is always the first domino to fall. If negotiations for the writers fail here and more money and power is stripped away from them and their future is written as something that can in writing be replaced by an AI, there is nothing stopping any industry from doing the same. Again, any corporation that can cut costs will, and any job that they can see as being done by a bot, by a robot, by an AI. I guarantee you there are already plans on a whiteboard to make that happen. So I think that what we're seeing in the strike here is maybe not the barrier holding all of that back, but something that has been building in the ugly recesses of American capitalism for a long time, which is the devaluing of work writ large and if there are any people out there listening who do somehow support the studios and are against the writers then that i think is a pretty good reason
0: to switch sides and again when you look at the libraries these studios have to offer, how many titles are about corporations sucking the humanity out of our very existence and how they have to be stopped. So I think that perhaps they should take a sip of their own medicine as they plot their next moves, because you're entirely correct.
1: Interesting how writers keep writing that as a part of fiction over and over and over again, as though it's somehow relevant.
0: Perhaps the trope is based in some fact after all. Uh, Gilbert, are there any kind of concluding thoughts you want to hit about the strike or any predictions you want to make as we wrap up our chat here?
1: We're a little bit out of my element here. I would love to say that the directors and the actors joining the picket lines will force the industry to a standstill and the studios to the table. But as you said before, they make deals and let's be honest, these are celebrities. This is Hollywood. These people can be pretty vain and self-serving when they want to be. So... My only hope is that we can hold the line and that the future of content and entertainment is protected.
0: Well, at least those are small stakes. (laughs) Again, I echo everything that you're saying. I think that you and I may be covering this topic a little bit more depending on how long it unfolds. I have heard from several uh, reporters and different outlets that the strike is forecasted to go on quite a while. So there may be developments we want to hit later on. But as we also watch the strike, we are also looking ahead to what the industry is offering over the course of the summer, because many film projects have already completed their production. They are ready to come to our screens, and we are ready to receive them. We've already talked about some of the most hyped films of the year. You can check out one of our previous episodes for that. But there's a lot to get excited about this summer, and we want to continue to stoke those fires for you. So Gilbert, what are you looking at this summer?
1: Who oh boy, this is a really exciting summer to me. I'm looking at a list here that we made before the show of just everything coming out. Not all of it necessarily strikes my particular fancy but there really is just something for everyone. Like the heavy hitters are gonna be the things that we know are coming out. The things like Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, Mission Impossible, Oppenheimer, Barbie, my beloved Gran Turismo, biggest movie of the summer, 2023, let's go. Um, Hype
0: train, hype train for a car movie.
1: Something, something, gotta go fast. (laughs) (laughs) But starting with Memorial Day weekend with the release of The Little Mermaid, I think we have our first chance at a box office close to what we saw in the record-breaking 2019 than we have since then, because with just some of these movies, there is a lot that audiences are going to flock to. There's a lot that they can flock to. I'm looking at two movies here just right off the bat, I think could easily turn out a billion dollars just based on popular trends of movie going over the summer, over particular studios, but there's also a lot more smaller, intimate, more interesting stuff that I hope doesn't get left by the wayside. Things like You Hurt My Feelings, which was on both of our most anticipated lists for the year. Things like Bottoms, an extremely fun, raunchy sex comedy with Rachel Sennett starting a fight club, which no part of that sounds bad. So when I say this could be something akin to 2019, bear in mind that was the summer of Avengers Endgame, the Aladdin remake, the Lion King remake, and Spider-Man Far From Home. Each of those movies pulled in a billion dollars. I'm not saying I think that we're going to see the exact same thing here because, frankly, movie tickets have gotten way too expensive for that, and people do not go to the movies as often as they used to. They certainly don't have the freedom or the finances to. But this is the first summer in non-pandemic memory, without a Marvel movie calling the shots and running the table of what is expected to be the biggest juggernaut of the June, July, August season. And I am excited to see what that can yield for us in terms of box office results this year in terms of what lessons studios and, by that point, hopefully writers take from that as far as what will be made in the future. And I I think there's a lot that I'm going to be forking over my money to see, whether it's because it's from a franchise that I already have a vested interest in or or from an auteur who I'm always willing to see whatever their next project is.
0: There's a couple of the uh, films that fit that category for me as well, or those categories, I should say. Um, I feel a little bit like the Bill Hader, Stefan, when I look at this summer, because I think, you know this summer's got it all like it's we've got <laughs> we've got options for everybody if you like raunchy sex comedies if you like superhero franchise ip dominance if you like small scale wes anderson dollhouse movies there really is something to satisfy every taste you know there's a, a film coming out about my father as well in competition with about your father about my father <laughs> my father it's a, it's called About My Father with Sebastian Maniscalco and Robert De Niro playing his father. And it looks like a great family comedy that I, I'd take my parents to, that I would legitimately be a fun time at the theater, the kind of afternoon the studios desperately want me to have with my family. So my great concern is whether or not the box office can support this kind of output. The box office is getting back on its feet and it's exciting to see... A multitude of films coming out in a season where releases felt very uneven. You had some new projects, some holdover projects, some projects that had been delayed because of COVID, some things that had been rushed because of COVID. And now it feels like we're finally seeing a slate of actual robust summer films. But the concern I have is that many of the tentpole films that have come out to date, you pointed out many superhero films that we've seen this year, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, Guardians of the Galaxy has been performing well, but did not have the strongest opening of that that franchise. But it does have legs. Uh, It does have legs, which is great to see. Shazam 2, Fury of the Gods, another DC superhero title. I guess we're not talking about that one. Um, (laughs) So some of these films that are considered the heart of the box office right now have not been performing as strongly as studios might hope or as analysts and watchers might expect. And I hope that doesn't affect or cast a dark cloud over the summer. I hope that audiences do turn out because with an abundance of films hitting theaters, studios will be watching closely to see what does well. What are audiences coming out to see? What type of projects are we going to support in the future? And it would be disappointing if in a time when the box office is still recovering and when people are really feeling the squeeze on their wallets and how they spend their time, if the decision makers say, well, this film didn't perform in a crowded season, so we're not going to make these other kind of comedies or small scale dramas anymore, or we're going to slow that down. I think this is studios starting to put their toe back in the water to see what works, to see what they can they can make that will energize audiences. But I just hope that people won't have to make hard choices about what to see and that studios will decide that it's a flaw with and a reason why they shouldn't continue to give types of films a chance.
1: One thing you can always count on is for studios to take the wrong lessons from their box office successes. And I'll be very interested to see how the indie market does in the face of the tentpoles, as you put it. Because there are a few movies on this list, and more that aren't on it, that... I can already tell you will make money guaranteed. Movies like Mission Impossible, Oppenheimer, The Little Mermaid, Spider-Man. These are things with trust behind them, whether it's the Disney brand, Christopher Nolan, the amount of people who loved Into the Spider-Verse. These are things that, peop- that there is genuine excitement for, and you will see passion fueling that box office. But as you said, with the indie market getting back on its feet here, we have smaller releases like Asteroid City or No Hard Feelings or You Hurt My Feelings. And I'll be very curious to see what, if anything, they can pull in because they also have star power behind them. They also have trust whether it's in whether it's in Wes Anderson or Julia Louis-Dreyfus or any of these other people my hope is that we can start to see the box office return to a state of equilibrium where everyone who shows up gets a piece of the pie rather than it being a winner-take-all scenario
0: it's disappointing when there are only a few people at the top because then for people like you and me, there's there's less to discuss, there's less to talk about. Yes, studios will always take the wrong lesson from the box office because their primary concern is always the money over the product. It's good that we've gotten to a point where these many offerings are back in theaters. I think that they'll need to have very strong openings because I don't know the kind of legs that they'll have into the summer because, again, there are so many releases where I'm not sure it's likely audiences will go back to see a movie a second time when they have to make a choice between going to see something new next week because there will be something new next week or, for example, going out and doing some kind of summer activity It's going to be difficult to win the limited war for attention that is the new battleground for many studios and producers. So... Hopefully they can open well um, and there's a few very crowded flashpoints that will make it difficult where we probably, for those same reasons, won't see people getting two tickets on opening day. That will be something to watch, how well the films hold. I don't know how many blockbusters the summer will be able to support.
1: I hope that people see that there is something for everyone and they recognize that something for everyone is something for them. I, I hope that... Everyone makes money, everybody pulls in their demographic and we don't have to lament the loss of any particular release from theaters because just not enough people went to go see it. Obviously I'm living in a fantasy world here and any movie that probably will have a great life on streaming will probably not have that great a life in theaters. But I am excited by the content that we have coming out. and. I could see a world in which the box office this summer is the best news movies have gotten in a very long time.
0: In some ways, it would be great for the writers that they could show that the work that they produce is beloved and generates revenue for the studios. That would certainly be a sign of their value. And I do hope that the movies get the recognition they deserve. I would love to see more of the creators get a chance to pursue projects in the future and to develop their craft further. So there's definitely a lot of movies I will be seeing this summer and a lot of people that will be winning the vote of my dollar. So I'm just excited to get some of these movies into my veins.
1: What is the movie that's coming out between Memorial Day and September that you are most excited for? And which one do you think is the biggest question mark as far as box office
0: success? The one that I'm most excited for is a bit of a challenge, actually. I feel like I know what you're going to say here. At this point, I think I'm going to have to swerve and say Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1.
1: I thought you were going to say you were torn between that and Oppenheimer.
0: I have been a bit of a Cassandra on Oppenheimer for a while. I'm not going to bet against its anticipated success because I think that Christopher Nolan is a brand that carries a lot of weight. And I think that a lot of people will be excited to go out and see this film and support this director. The cast is certainly very intriguing. There's a lot of very interesting faces involved. But as interesting as the Manhattan Project is going to be, I do wonder how Nolan will translate this story. I genuinely have no idea what to expect. Uh, and so for that reason, it is a question mark for me. I I don't know what this is or what it's going to be. And when I've seen trailers, I don't feel like I learned anything. It's It's as Byzantine as a Nolan storyline, even though I know the history. So... I'm excited for it. I really hope that Nolan can execute well, because these characters who are tortured by the burden of their responsibility or what they've done are at the center of his movies. He does have an obsession with science, with humanity's role in its own destruction. So he has picked this project well, but I really just do not have any notions as to what will appear on screen conventional fireworks or explosives but i don't know and it's for that reason i can't say i'm most excited for it just because i i feel like i can't connect to it already and with mission impossible i know what to look forward to those films do a great job letting you know what's up and that might be the stewardship of Tom Cruise and Christopher McQuarrie, who have been at this for a while now and know how to deliver with these films. But I know what to expect from Mission Impossible. I know what to expect from this actor and this director. And I'm really excited to see some newcomers join the cast and some faces to return. This is a movie where I know that no matter what happens, I'll walk out of it feeling really exhilarated. Uh, there are many movies I'm excited to see because I want to see what they'll turn out to be. You know, I'm excited to see Barbie for that reason. I'm excited to see Asteroid City for that reason because their presence that I really want to open up. I want to see what's inside, but I know that Mission Impossible is what's going to meet its its promises. So that's where I stand.
1: Honestly, good answers. I have to agree with you. Mission Impossible is, of course, my most excited movie on this list. It's my most excited movie on my list from a couple episodes ago. My question mark though I think has to be elemental. I've got a good feeling about this one. The way I see it, there's two kinds of Pixar movies. There's the ones that they put out under duress, and there's the ones that make you absolutely sob in the theater seat, and you can tell that they are goddamn proud that they made. And just on a very basic but very simple to understand premise of this movie, I feel like this is going to be the latter. I I feel like this is going to be something funny, something sad, something possibly romantic. And just based on how Pixar does at the summer box office year after year after year, I think this movie could really be something big.
0: This is a film that I'm not excited to go out and see, but I'm very excited to watch uh, or to spectate (laughs) because... I personally don't feel very inspired by the trailers or what I've seen so far. It it doesn't speak to me in quite the same way. Although, again, I hope it is great for the sake of the studio and animation. Although, looking back on the past two Pixar movies to be released, you have Lightyear and Turning Red. Turning Red did not appear theatrically. Uh, It was a straight-to-Disney Plus release. And I feel like the critical reaction was quite strong. There was a little bit of controversy about the, the themes, which I... I don't think was in the best faith, but I think that for the most part, it was very well received and it it performed very strongly uh, as far as viewership is concerned. But then Lightyear, which is the most classic bread and butter IP that you can possibly imagine from Pixar really underperformed and did not have a solid run in theaters when it did debut at the same time. There's been a really impressive track record for animated films in the past six months when you look at the super mario brothers movie which is really just doing gangbusters and then when you look at puss in boots the last wish came out at the end of 2022 uh animated films are thriving especially for children and pixar has normally been a standby in that category but they faltered in recent years so will they be able to get back on the horse and take advantage of the animation wave will this film be a miss? I, I'm holding my breath. I'll wait to see it. Again, as you say, it, it might really energize people and get them out to theaters, and it might be, be pretty fun. I will say it does look like a nice light and breezy summer release. I think that sometimes Pixar movies can take a bit of a weird twist, but I think that this is very well calibrated to come out to be refreshing or easily accessible just during the summer season. So it may have that working in its favor, but I'm I'm very curious to see how it will perform Um
1: I don't want to get too far down the Pixar rabbit hole because I think there's a larger conversation we could probably have at a later date on that. But I think th- what interests me about Pixar is they're kind of the exception to the IP domination of the industry, where everybody else is trying to build franchises and universes Pixar has found success with some of their sequels, but that is not what has people showing up. What makes people excited for Pixar films is their originality, their spontaneity, the notion that here is another concept for a story that, based on their past track record, I trust in their hands. And I feel like Elemental could be that, but we will see.
0: Well, in that case, it's time for our water cooler segment where we take a moment to catch up on stories that have passed us by in an otherwise busy, busy world. It's also a moment where we hydrate because Gilbert and I have now been talking for over an hour and it's thirsty work. But I do have a topic I'm going to propose to the class for consideration this week. Speak. So by the time this podcast hits the air, we will have passed the great transition where HBO Max becomes Max, and the former service will be phased out in favor of a new union between HBO Max, Warner, and Discovery, which has been much anticipated and ballyhooed for the past few years. And this will no doubt bring about pretty seismic changes for these two companies um, and for the industry at large as two Keystone television studios and a movie studio now merge. But looking down here at the ground here, Gilbert, is there anything that you would like to see out of this new streaming service or this new app or anything that you think it's going to need to do in order to succeed?
1: I think it's really hard to conceptualize what a merging of content between HBO Max and Discovery Plus looks like because those are two very different channels. Discovery is all reality, it's science, it is history in some cases, whereas HBO Max is entertainment. You know, they have their documentaries and everything, but they make stuff that makes you want to sit down, throw your phone across the room and just pay rapt attention to it. And I don't know what a platform with both of those things, I, I would have to assume equally emphasized, looks like. All I can say is with the rollout happening imminently, it is vital to Warner Brothers Discovery that the launch goes smoothly, that there is no technical glitches or hiccups or issues That would prevent people from streaming the minute one app changes over into another because that is the fastest way to burn any reputation they could have hoped to build with it and it would set everything that max has coming out for it off on a rocky foot, because if this thing is not the powerhouse that, frankly, HBO Max had to be when Warner Brothers and Time Warner launched it, then there's a very real possibility that either of these companies may not be here in 10 years. And I don't even want to think about that. But it's hard to know what a partial success for this will look like, because I don't know who Warner Brothers' discoveries demographic is that they're hoping to reel in. I know that HBO Max subscriptions through cable providers will roll over straight into Max, so no risk of loss there. I have no doubt that that will not last, but it's going to be important for them to start rolling out new exclusive content that makes people want to sign up.
0: I think that they definitely will want the transition to be as smooth as possible. I think it's going to be essential for users to be able to find the content they're looking for as smoothly and efficiently as possible. If there's an issue with that, the service may be dead in the water. And it would be colossal to think that the studios wouldn't and the companies might not exist in 10 years. But just getting into the weeds, I want a good user experience. The one thing that unifies many of the streaming services is that they are all equally incompetent at giving me a direct pathway to the content I want. I don't even mean as far as their ability to predict what shows I'll like, because when I go on a streaming service, I'm typically very directed. I know the show or the movie I'm looking for. I'm either trying to rewatch something ahead of a new release or a new installment in that franchise, or I'm trying to catch up on a director's films. And so I kind of know exactly where I have to look. I don't particularly worry about the studio Or the service being able to tell me, check out this film. Because in my experience, every streaming service, every category is just the same films in a different order. And the algorithm doesn't actually deliver me a lot of unique results. That might be a result of my idiosyncrasies. But when I go into the service, I just want to be able to get in and get out. I find that many times they're buggy. Many times they're hard to navigate. Many times they don't give you the information or the options that you want. Or they make it confusing to get certain settings I like to watch with closed captioning, for example, with subtitles, because even when it's a show in English, it's easier to follow and on certain services it is so hard to simply enable english with subtitles you really have to do a dance and go through a couple of hoops and you think that this is something that should be pretty basic you know all i want are some words to appear on the screen so i hope that the user experience is actually able to catch up with disney in particular you guys invented jarvis and the avengers like you know what technology that's cool and intuitive is supposed to look like so i want to see a little bit of that in the actual products you're putting out. Do something that makes it easy and fun for me to come into your product and not make me think that I'm thumbing through some old catalog. I want something that's kind of fresh, modern, and easy to use. Fully
1: agree with you there. One thing that does concern me as we approach the eve of the whole Max transition is HBO Max's content library. Because I would say that HBO Max probably has the best library of licensed content of any streaming platform out there. They have classic films. They have Studio Ghibli films. They have obviously their big tent poles like the DC universe and Harry Potter and things like that. But there are so many movies on that platform from decades ago that I'd be willing to bet do not get a lot of playtime month to month. And we already know that David Zaslav is not at all afraid of reducing content as evidenced by the obliteration of Batgirl and Infinity Train in two examples of things that should just never have happened. So I do have fear for that because if, frankly, if HBO Max loses those movies, I don't know when or if or where I'll be able to see them elsewhere. And that is just worse for movies. It's worse for movie watching, but that could help Zaslav's bottom line. So I could definitely see those being a casualty of this new phase of the streaming war here.
0: That would be a pretty profound loss because I do think of HBO as the most robust library. uh, And I do count on them in many ways to offer films that are hard to find elsewhere. And that's... One reason why they're such a prestige brand is because they're able to offer those classics and that wide range of options. So I hope that they continue to hold on to that. I hope that Zaslav realizes that is the value of what he bought, not a liability.
1: All we can do is hope and speculate.
0: And hope and speculate we will, Gilbert. Hope and speculate we will, including next time, because I think we're going to wrap things up there. It has been, of course, a pleasure going round and round and round with you on some of our favorite topics and the latest news affecting the industry. And so we will be back next time. We will be in the thick of the summer season and there will be much to discuss. So with that, we thank you so much for listening. We're so uh, grateful to be on the air and that there are people out there who are actually listening to our thoughts. Thank you so much. Uh, Remember to like, to follow, and subscribe, and rate. And we will continue to give our thoughts and our musings and our gratitude. So uh, I am Steve Vieira. And I'm Matt Gilbert. And this has been Audience Surrogate. Thanks so much. (laughs) The less people see, the less they wanna, you know. The less they're, you know. Scrap that. Um,
1: the more I see, the less I know. The less I'd like to let it go.
0: Um. Yeah. If only if only we could translate that yeah. for the audio. Um. Post credits. <laughs> <laughs>